Well, it's one of the families that I know from our time at UBC. First thing he said to me when he walked in was, Happy New Year. And so I want to say that to you all, too. Happy New Year. Uh, here we are. Brand new year. 2022. So I'm curious, have y'all already started with your New Year's resolutions? Have you already broken your New Year's resolution? Well, just to give you a little bit of an idea why I'm up here, Thursday night, I'm just sitting at the house. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call. And then before that phone call finished up, I got a second phone call. And the first one was from Logan, and the second one was from Ben. And Ben is on the IL. Now, that's baseball talk. So if you, those who know me, they know what I'm talking about at this point. And he's got uh, – he's sick. And so the call went to the bullpen. And they were looking for a flame-throwing right-hander. But they got me. So one of the things that pastors do in the new year as they get started, they like to kind of pull back. Sometimes pastors will have started a series. They might be in the middle of a series, going through a book of the Bible or maybe a topical series. And sometimes at the beginning of the year, they like to pull back a little bit and kind of give an overarching viewpoint of the Christian life and maybe a little bit of how this new year of 2022 might look. And so that was what I was doing two years ago. Um, sometimes I get calls, uh, churches in a time of a transition. And two years ago, that church was out towards West Fork. And so uh, one of the reasons that I can be called on a short notice is because I do keep my sermons. And I had this idea back then to give that kind of a viewpoint, a big overarching uh, look at the new year coming. And I also had never preached a sermon from the book of 2 John. And so those two things came together, and that's where we're going to be this morning, 2 John. So you can already begin to go ahead and turn there. And as we think about this, the author actually does not identify himself other than by the term the elder. But as we begin to get into the book, we get to see some themes that are very uh, revealing as to the author and who his identity is. The Apostle John is the longest living of the apostles of Jesus. He's writing all the way at the end of the first century. And so the Gospel of John the book of Revelation and those three short letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are all written probably between A.D. 90 and 95. And so this is the disciple. You remember when Jesus leans back, he's leaning. John's leaning on the breast of Jesus. He's the disciple that's described as the one that Jesus loved and had a specially close relationship to. So we can be confident when this disciple starts talking about the Lord, we can be confident he knows what he's talking about. There's two themes that are prominent in his writing. The one of them is the identity of Jesus Christ. He's making, he goes at great lengths to, to say, this isn't just a man. This is God that has come in the flesh. 
So the identity of Jesus Christ and the necessity of following his teaching, those are great big concerns to the Apostle John. So with that as a little bit of a backdrop to the book, um, I'm going to read. It isn't very often you read an entire book for one sermon, but it's only 13 verses. So look now at God's word as I read. Second John, beginning at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So you notice in this reading that there's this word walk or walking. It comes up three times, walking once, walk twice. And so if there was a title to this message, I would put it this way, instructions on how to walk. Now, that probably strikes you a little bit odd, but instructions on how to walk. What, what, what does that mean? Because you think about the fact that an infant, when they get started, they're, at some point, they start to crawl. A toddler, you, you remember how that is when your child was that one? I remember when our son, he first started to walk, and he's kind of, you know, doing this number and unsteady. And then as he gets a little bit older, and then as kids, all the way through adult, we just walk. We don't even think about it. I mean, did you wake up this morning trying to remember how to walk? Probably not. It would be very nice, though, if it were that easy in the Christian life to walk. Now you see where I'm going. Now think about this. You know somebody who has had an injury, a debilitating injury, and all of a sudden they can't walk. 
have to relearn all of those things that they just kind of did naturally as a kid. Maybe they had an illness or an injury or they had a stroke. And then all of a sudden you understand it's not so easy to walk. And brothers and sisters in the Christian life, we're all of the time stumbling. And we're falling sometimes flat on our face in the mud and struggling to get up and get back in the race. So this idea of walking, we take it for granted in our physical sense, but in a spiritual sense is a very difficult thing to do. And if we don't understand that, then we really haven't understood the difficulty of the Christian life a lot of times. One of the commentators that I really particularly like, I, Howard Marshall, said this, walking was used to describe the whole of a person's existence and behavior. And with that thought in mind, I want us to look at three things as we begin to unpack this portion of Scripture. Number one, we will walk in the truth. Number two, we will walk in love. But then number three, we do not walk with false teachers. So I'll repeat that, these three, as we get to them. We're going to start with, we walk in the truth. Now look again at verse, verses one through five, one through four. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. So if you're good at counting, you just notice in these four verses, five times, the Apostle John has talked about the truth. And you might just ask yourself, why such an emphasis on truth? Well, one of the emphasis, on, the emphasis here on truth is one of the very good indicators that this is the Apostle John. The writer identifies himself as the elder, but he's not identifying himself as the elder because he's old, although there might be some truth to that, but rather his position of spiritual oversight over the churches of God. And this is a theme that John has particularly in his three short epistles. Do you know there are 20 specific references to truth in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? That's not by accident. When you mention, you know, you think about the books, there are five chapters in 1 John, but there's 13 verses in 2 John and only 15 verses in 3 John, and yet there are 20 specific references to truth. And that only echoes what he has said way back in his gospel. In John chapter 4, this is what he writes. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? Truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So I want to say this. If we say that we love God, we should be saying at the same time that we love truth 
and especially the truth of God's word. The goal of John's writing, as we know from John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, is that Jesus Christ be identified as God the Son. And as he identifies God the Son, then he's going to talk about what God the Son did when he was on this earth. And we recall that word from John chapter 14 and verse 6, where Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not a truth. He is the truth. And if we miss that, we're missing something very big. John 1.17 says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so what that tells us very plainly is we better believe rightly about Jesus. And when you start talking about Jesus to people in your realm of influence, a coworker, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody that maybe you don't have that much contact with, but they start talking about Jesus, a good question to ask them is, which Jesus are they talking about? And sometimes when you find out, you begin to understand that, wow, I'm not sure where you're getting your information from, but that doesn't sound like the Jesus that's described by the Apostle John. And so a good question sometimes to ask somebody is, which Jesus are they talking about? Is he just a good teacher? Is he one of many ways to God? Or is he who he said he is in John 14, 6 that I've just quoted? We must rightly believe about him, but not only rightly believe about him, but obey all that he taught and modeled. John MacArthur says this, walking in truth refers to moving through life controlled by the truth. And the Apostle Paul throws in his three cents worth. He stresses the importance of walking in the truth. In Romans chapter 6, he says, walk in newness of life. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, walk as children of light. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And that's what we just got here in verse 6 of our text here in 2 John, where in verse 6 it says this, that we are to walk according to his commandments. So this is not just an indiscriminate walking and meandering along. What are you doing today? Oh, I'm walking. How? Are we walking in obedience to this word? And so I want to say this to sum up what I've been saying to this point. To walk in the truth means to not only believe the right things and to say the right things, but to back up what we say we believe with how we live. And I want to say that again. To walk in the truth means to not only believe the right things and to say the right things, but to back up what we say we believe with how we actually live. And if you're honest with yourself, as I am with myself, we don't do this. And so we leave ourselves wide open from outside to the charge of being a hypocrite. And do you know what I say to that? Guilty as charged. I am a hypocrite. 
I believe rightly, and a lot of times I don't live up to what I believe. And if you're anything like me, you know that to be true about yourself as well. And we grieve the Spirit of God. And many times we bring discredit to the cause of Christ. And so one of the ways that I disarm that charge of being a hypocrite is I acknowledge that it's true. But then sometimes what I do is I turn the table on them and I ask in what sense did they live up to what they say they believe? Because Christians are not the only hypocrites. If we are a human being and we live and breathe, we are a hypocrite. Because no one, save one, even Jesus, is the only one who absolutely, 100% of the time, lived up to what he said, he believed, and what he taught. But none of the rest of us do that. And so, when we stress truth, but we're caught in our hypocrisy, what's, what remains for us? To confess it, to ask for forgiveness, to repent, and to remember the gospel. Because it's not about Frank being perfect. It's about remembering the one who is and was and always will be perfect, even Jesus Christ himself. And to remember what he did. He went to the cross so that I would not have to do what I can never do. But I need to trust and to believe that he is able to do what he did. And he died the death that I can't die so that I might have life even when I deserve death. And so we have this emphasis here in 2 John. John is pressing the point that we need to walk in the truth. So with all of the right, rightful emphasis on truth, even the truth, we need to be reminded that it is possible to stand for truth in an unloving way. And now I'm going to get preachy. Because brothers and sisters, I see way too many times that Christians bang people over the head with truth. And they do it in a very unloving way in a very judgmental way. And it's a truth bomb. They sit behind their barrier and they got their grenade and they throw it out and they hope somebody gets hurt by it. Brothers and sisters, that does not bring honor and glory to the Lord. When we throw a truth bomb, we need to be ready to repent. And sometimes when we throw that truth bomb, what we're saying to people is, if you had it together like I did, you wouldn't be doing that. What does that sound like? The scriptures calls it pride. And pride is sin. And when we have sin and we proudly hold to the truth and go around like we're the only ones who have the truth, God have mercy on us. Because there's something that we all need at that point. You know, I don't know how it is for, for y'all. I know that some of y'all are in my age bracket. Way back in the day, we used to hear this quite a little bit. There, but for the grace of God, go I. 
And do you know what? I almost never hear that anymore. I get the idea today that we go by because we got it pretty well figured out. I ain't going to be doing what you're doing. Come on, man. You need to repent. As if we wouldn't be subject to that very thing that they just stumbled in. Wow. And so if I rightly understand the truth of God's word, I see very clearly how desperately I need a savior. How desperately I need a savior. And when I recognize the truth of God, I'm humbled. Because I recognize there are way too many times that I say the right thing and turn right around and do the wrong thing. And so I'm asking and I'm challenging you this morning to not only stand for the truth, but to stand for the truth in humility and have compassion on the one that you don't believe has the truth. One of the things that I've noticed, it seems like a lot of times that we get pretty prideful about holding to the truth and we identify the other people on the other side as those who have no idea. And we have very little compassion for the fact that they are in darkness to this very time. And we forget sometimes that we've been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom of God's marvelous light and we have hope in a future and yet they don't. They have been rescued. Does that not motivate you to pray for them? Rather than to be judgmental or to say, ha, 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 boy, I busted their sorry argument. Really? Wasn't there a day that you had a sorry argument and you desperately needed to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? How dare you to be, to be so prideful and arrogant against somebody who hasn't yet seen that? I was 22 when God saved me. And I think back to what I was doing at 22, and I am so thankful that God had mercy on a sinner. Wow. people that we rub shoulders with every day, this afternoon, this evening, this week, as you go back to work or go back to school, you're going to be bumping into people. And that's where they're standing right now. And if we love the truth, we will have compassion on them and we will desire to tell the truth and to hold out the hope of the gospel to them. Help us, God, to do that. But I want to now move on to the second point. We walk in love. Now look at verses five and six. And now I ask you, dear lady, not only, uh, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should, so that you should walk in it. And so John here now makes the transition. He's not throwing, he's saying, okay, we've already dealt with truth, so forget about all that. We're moving on. No, he's saying, you do hold on to truth, but I'm going to add something to that here. And we hold on to truth in love. He tells us it's not a new commandment. And actually, in the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 7, it says this. Beloved, I am writing, I am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And that reminder from the Apostle John takes us back to what Jesus taught 
when he walked the earth roughly 60 years prior to what we're getting here in John's writing. John chapter 13, this is very familiar, two verses here, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need reminders because we are forgetful. Some of you that know me pretty well uh, know that we have a cat. Now he's just my cat, Mr. Max, and he has feline asthma, which means that every day I've got to give him his inhaler. And you'd think that I would just be right on top of that. I would never forget it. And boy, I've got a note there in this place and that other place, and I still can forget it. We need reminders. We are so prone to need reminders. Now, I'm the old guy who writes out the notes. You today have your cell phone that reminds you of your calendar. You've got other different ways. You have people who are going to text you real quick. Hey, remember to do this. So you've got different ways, but we all need reminders. I. Howard Marshall says this, Christians must love one another. This is the basis of Christian living to which all believers constantly need to be recalled. Loving one another is one of the ways that we witness to a watching world. So we do need that reminder. But John goes even further here. And now in verse six, he's going to give us a command, a command to love one another. If a reminder does not suffice, and sadly, oftentimes it doesn't, then John does give us the command. And that was in verse six, where he says this. Uh, let me find verse six. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. So now here we have the command. He at first gives us the reminder, but then he says, if that's not enough, I am going to yet give you that command. And so does the writer to the Hebrews. We hear in chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, some of you know my wife, and you probably remember that I came here uh, for a couple of Sundays in August, right after she had gone to be with the Lord. And one of the things that my wife used to love to do at our church was to remind people, encourage people to go and look in on our homebound members, those who could no longer get out to be a part of the gathering on Sundays. And that was really on her heart. She did such a fantastic job with that. We need that kind of encouragement. We need to be there for our brothers and sisters. Hey, don't forget, we need to be doing these things. And those one and others are hugely important in the body of Christ. So we have a reminder, then we have the command, but we also have a description of what that looks like to love one another. We live out the commands of Jesus, and boy, Jesus had a number of them in Mark chapter 12. He tells us to love the Lord your God with your entire being, and then he says also, love your neighbor as yourself. In John 15, that great teaching of the vine and the branches, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Keeping 
my commandments equals obeying my commandments. That's what Jesus would have us to know. It's keeping equals obeying. So why is it so important that we walk obediently in love? And the answer to that question is this. Obedience is not just a matter of saying the right things. Obedience to God's commands demonstrates that we really love God. Acceptance of the truth involves active love. Where love is absent, it is a sign that the truth has not really been accepted. Earlier, we saw that it is possible to stand for truth in an unloving way. Now we need to see the flip side. It is also possible to recognize that we can love people without any regard for the truth. And so we hear today in our culture in particular, uh, you should just love me no matter what. Uh, If you really loved me, you'd kind of stop talking about that. No, that's not the truth. That's just as big a lie as the other side. It's not truth or love, but truth, but both truth and love. Put them both together. When we major on the one side, some of us are great at knowing the truth. We argue well. We know the doctrines. We know the scriptures. And we can come down hard on truth. And a lot of times we don't really do it with love. And then on the other side, oh, come on, man. Just leave that go. You know, just stop leaning on him so hard. You just love him. And both of those things, it's like the old saying, you you can fall off the horse on either side. What's true is you're on the ground. If you fell off the left or if you fell off the right, you're still on the ground. We don't need to be doing that. Put both of these things together. So we, we, we speak the truth in love, both truth and love. God has spoken in his word. We believe him. And in love, we communicate his word to our family and friends and to the culture in general. And so as we walk in the truth and in love, we are then distinguished from where we're going now with this third and final point. We're going to be distinguished from false teachers. So now look at verse 7. In verse 7 now, here begins to be the shift, because John's going to tell us quite clearly, we do not walk with false teachers. So after all that we have heard on truth, and now these couple verses on love, now he's actually going to spend a bigger portion to say that we don't do this with false teachers. Verse seven, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So first of all, notice that there is a reality of false teachers. They have gone out into the world. And by the way, John makes it plain. 
There are not just a few of them. He says there are many deceivers. I heard Marshall says this, Jesus had prophesied the appearance of false prophets who would attempt to deceive God's people back in Mark chapter 13. And now that prophecy has come true. So here's John at the end of the first century. This is about 60 years after Jesus was teaching as he walked on this earth. And he said there are going to be false teachers. John MacArthur adds in this thought. False teachers were assaulting the congregations under John's care. These heretics were traveling from church to church, taking advantage of Christian hospitality as they spread their venomous lies. John R.W. Sott said this, as the apostles were sent forth into the world to preach the truth, so these false teachers have gone forth to teach lies as emissaries of the devil, the father of lies. So there is the reality of false teachers. And now we look at the heresy of false teachers. What specifically were they teaching back then? Verse 7 says that they're anti-Christ which means against Christ. They taught that Jesus did not come in the flesh. He was a figment of your imagination. He walked around and he only had the appearance of being a human. And of course, if you believe that, then what happened on the cross is a charade. So this is not just a small matter that they're teaching. They taught that the doctrine, uh, the doctrine that they taught opposes Christ and it deceives men. Marshall says, radically opposed to the true, doctrine, uh, the, the true doctrine about Christ. They denied both the incarnation and by implication, not only his birth, but his perfect life in the flesh, his substitutionary death and subsequent resurrection. And so you ask, what's at stake? Friends, what's at stake is everything. If this lie that they taught is true, then we have no point in being here today. But if what they taught is a lie, there is every good reason for us to be here. Because Jesus lived, and he walked, and he taught, and he was crucified, and he was dead, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And our Jesus Christ is alive at the right hand of God the Father. What's at stake? Everything. And you see why John now is getting worked up here. He's getting preachy, isn't he? What, and, then, and then in verse 9, we have this phrase. And, and I, when I first looked at it, I was, hmm, what he means by that? It says here that everyone who goes on ahead. And do you know what? This is sometimes what we hear even on certain programs on TV or in certain churches. This is what comes out. Well, yeah, that's right. You do start out with Jesus, but to, to really get to be up to the top of the list, you got to do and then fill in the blank. And it's this, that's that, and the other. False teaching. It's when every time you say Jesus plus something, you're wrong. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When you say Jesus plus something, whatever you just added in de detracts from Jesus 
and most often denies the biblical Jesus. Be aware, beware of any word of knowledge that contradicts the revealed word of God. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. They were denying the revealed word of God. They were denying Jesus, the written word, and the physically indwelling of humanity word. The bottom line is this. Do not abide in the teaching of Christ. To not abide in the teaching of Christ ultimately means that we do not have God. When we find something else that we think is better than Jesus, we're already on the wrong track. And so now comes finally his warning against the false teacher. Look at verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And the first thing that I want us to think about is that we do need to know sound doctrine. What I said earlier about truth, and sometimes the way that we respond to the truth by holding it over people and hammering them over the head, does not mean that we don't hold to truth. We better know the truth. We better know that we understand what good and right doctrine is. But we just don't want to use it as a club to beat somebody over the head. Let God's word have its good effect in them without us having to be arrogant about it. So we do know what the true word of God is. We do know what right and good doctrine is. And why? Well, then we'll be able to know the counterfeit. And you've probably been, you, you've known this somewhere along the way, especially those of us who are a little bit older. But when you ever go into a bank and you have people that they check out that bill that you just gave them, well, they've been trained to recognize the counterfeit because they know the real thing so well. And sometimes just by feeling it, you say, that ain't right. And they know the counterfeit because they know the real thing. Can the truth be Can that be said of us truthfully? Do we know false doctrine because we know what right doctrine looks like? Sometimes there's a little bit of a laziness about us. And oh, just let the preacher tell us on Sunday morning what that's all about. And we don't study. And we don't read good Christian books that kind of bolster our understanding of what God teaches here in his word. We don't want to be uh, those unable to detect false teaching. So we don't allow false teachers to enter our home. You know, now, because of the pandemic, it used to be when people come knocking at your door, you could just, and you didn't recognize them, you could just about know who they were. They either were Jehovah's Witnesses or maybe they were Mormons. Well, they don't typically do that anymore, not after the pandemic. You, they write letters and they come in. Or every once in a while you get a phone call from some number you don't recognize and you pick it up. I had a really enjoyable two-hour conversation yesterday with my sister, and she was just telling me that there was a Jehovah's Witness lady that called her right out of the blue. And right in the midst of the phone call, she was had, had an opportunity to tell her the truth. She had the ability to call out the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society as a false prophet 
organization because they had done multiple times of saying Jesus was going to come back and it didn't turn out to be true. And she knew that in Deuteronomy 18, the test of a true prophet is that what he says comes true. And if it doesn't come true, then you disregard it because he's a false prophet. And so right there on the phone, she was able to tell that lady, I think your organization is a false prophet. I don't think I'm going to listen to what you say, but the real prophet is Jesus. And she gave witness to Jesus right there on the phone call. Could you do something similar to that? That's what we're asked to do, to recognize right doctrine so that we can be on the guard against false doctrine. And we have plenty of these people. Not only do they come knocking at your door, but sometimes now they come on your TV in the way of prosperity teaching. When, when my wife was going through all of her treatment uh, for cancer over in Tulsa, I think we were in the backyard of the prosperity people. Well, we went through, we saw these monstrosities of churches and there was a 90 foot tall building over there that one of the guys erected because he wanted everybody to know how great he was. Wow. Now it comes through the internet. And back in the day, I worked at family Christian stores that used to be down there on Joyce. And I looked a lot of times in the, on the shelf and, you know, those who know me, know that if I'm addicted to anything, it's buying books. Some of you know that pretty well. And I would walk around our store and I would just see what there was there. And brothers and sisters, there was very little that was really worthwhile. You know, you, you could find out all about Joyce Meyer. You could find out all, you know, all of the Christian romance books were there by <laughs> whole sections. But to hear something from John Piper or someone else that we could respect, well, you had to go like a needle in a haystack looking for that. So we don't allow those things to come into our home, either through the Internet or through knocking at the door or people that talk to you and they want to sit on your porch and have a dialogue with you. To allow entry into your home in whatever way is to take part in their heresy. That's what John's telling us. He said, do not do that. So here we look at what we've seen now in these verses. The apostle John for 13 verses. And really, we've only really, really, really looked hard at 11. 12 and 13 is just the conclusion. So these verses, he's packed a lot into these verses. And I find them to be excellent guidelines for how we want to be thinking and living in this new year of 2022. We walk in the truth. We walk in love, but we do not walk with false teachers. You all know, I, I really don't know most everybody in this room. So my job at this point is to appeal to you. And if you're here this morning and all of this talk about Jesus has somehow just, you've, it just comes right over your head. I want to really appeal to you to consider where you stand in light of eternity. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Is that uh, hearsay or is there evidence in the way that you live your life? 
And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, please come talk to either me or someone else here in the body and, and make sure to be wrong on this issue is to be wrong for all of eternity. That's a very sobering thought. For you to be wrong about Jesus and the claim that he has on your life and to ignore that or to blow it off as if it's no big deal is to be wrong for all of eternity. But for most of us, for most of us, if not even all of us, I, again, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know y'all that well. We want to be found faithful. We want to be found faithful. Jesus is going to come back for us. We don't know when. Reading a great book right now by a Puritan, William Greenhill. And he's unpacking those last words from the end of Revelation 22. And that, those verses conclude, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Do you long for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Whatever we think we might have here that's pretty good pales into comparison to what we will have for all of eternity. And you know people like I know someone special who's already there, and I long to be with my wife and to be with the Lord and to be with others that I've known and to be able to celebrate with them throughout all of eternity the goodness and the mercy of God. So we want to be found faithful. And so let us heed this admonition that the Apostle John has given us this morning through 2 John. And so if you would pray with me as we close. Father, we, uh, we are humbled. We are humbled because of your mercy and your grace that you have condescended to love people such as ourselves who desperately need a savior. And father, to the extent that we have trusted Christ, wow, will we ever have an eternity worth looking at and longing for? Lord, I just really pray for each one here this morning Lord, we've heard from your word. We pray that Jesus would be our Lord and our Savior as we walk in newness of life in this brand new year. So please, Lord, by your spirit, help us to walk in a way that would bring you honor and glory. And to that end, we would praise you in that name, which is indeed above every other name, even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.